Well, good morning. Um, welcome to this uh, scattered worship virtual gathering. This the live stream of the Point Community Church. Uh, we are delighted that you have uh, joined with us uh, this morning. Um, keep your Bibles out. We will get there. First of all, uh, my name is Andy. I get to serve as one of the elders here at the Point Community Church, and it's just a joy and a privilege to do that. I hope you are uh, hope you are well uh, this morning. And so, for those of you that call the Point Community Church home, for the family, I just say uh, welcome to you. You are dearly missed. And for those of you that are visiting with us, and maybe you belong to another church family, or maybe you don't have a family and you're just tuning in, gosh, uh, thank you for doing that. If you don't have a church family, like we would love to connect uh, with you the best that we can while we're uh, in quarantine and we're scattered. Um, you can send a uh, email to the elders at the Point Community Church. You could fill out a virtual connect card. Um, or also, and for any information, you can simply um, email info at the point community, uh, church net, and we will uh, get you uh, information to you. Um, I want to tell you about two uh, upcoming Bible studies that we're offering starting tomorrow. Um, they will be virtual Bible studies, although we will be studying real Bibles, but they will ha be happening um, through Microsoft Teams. But at 8 a.m., that's right, 8 o'clock on a Monday morning, I can think of no better way to start your Monday morning, no better way to start your week than with a Bible study. And so, ladies, you're having a Bible study. Uh, Miss D. Smith is going to be leading you through uh, the book of 1 Peter. And so, if you want to join in, you can do that. Um, if you have not received an invitation, but you would like to receive an information, then you could just send that um, email. And it should be, for those of you who are on Facebook, it should be um, in the email below, that info email. Um, men, we will be starting a Bible study. Pastor Sean Post will be leading us through um, our beginnings um, Bible study where we're looking at the book of Genesis, Genesis um, chapters 12 through uh, 50, and that will be happening at 7 p.m. Um, tomorrow evening as well. And same way, it's through uh, uh, Microsoft Teams. And so, uh, yeah, hope you join us for that. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, um, gosh, Lord, Lord, as we try to gather together, just via ways that you've given us, mediums that you've given us that is pointing upward towards your, just your common grace for us. Lord, certainly that um, what was said, what you said of us in the garden, that it's not good for man to dwell alone. Many of us, we're feeling that. We're feeling disconnected from community, disconnected from one another, disconnected from our family, Lord. And so may all of these longings, may that roll upward. May all of our longings that we feel, may it, teach us a couple of things. May it remind us that this world is, is broken and it's fallen and that you, Jesus, you've come to overcome this world, that you've come um, to save sinners like us out of our brokenness, that it's our sin that broke it, Lord. And Lord, may it also just point us towards, towards heaven, that the church and a church family is a foretaste of heaven, the, the new community, the new family of God, Lord, and Lord, we, we find ourselves this morning longing for that home, longing for you, Christ, to return and to, and to um, fix all that's broken. And Lord, in the meantime, may your, may your gospel go forth. As some may say, why is he tarrying? Why is, it, why is it taking Christ so long? He's promised to return. Why is he taking so long? Well, he's taking so long so that 
He's giving opportunity. It's him, it's you, God, being patient with us so that people would repent and that people would turn. And Lord, as we look at an ancient text, as we look at Numbers 13, chapter 13, and on in even to 14, Lord, may it, may it draw us to your side. May it remind us of our rebellion against you, God. And again, and Lord, may it point us upward towards you, Jesus, the true and faithful child that has withstood temptation and calls us to yourself. To your name we pray. Amen. Well, we are in a series um, that we call the storyline of the Bible. We began it in the beginning of January, and I think this is um, sermon number 16 in that series. And so we find ourselves in Numbers chapter um, 13, and like I said, we're going to get into just a little bit of Numbers chapter 14 as well. Now, the children of Israel, they have, uh, they've been released from captivity. They've been released out of, out of Egypt, and they've spent, um, it's, a, it's about, been about two years since that release has taken place. So it's been about two years since they crossed over the Red Sea. They spent about a year at the base of Mount Sinai, and Moses goes up on the mountain, and Mount Sinai is a formative time for the children of Israel. It's on Mount Sinai where they receive, we get a number of things, three things that they receive there is they receive the instructions on how to build the tabernacle. And the tabernacle is the meeting place uh, between God and man. It's where God will dwell. What God is declaring in the tabernacle is that he is dwelling with his people. They receive the tabernacle. They receive the law, which is the, uh, it's actually the covenant of God. It's God instructing his people on how his people are to live. And we looked at that uh, over the last two weeks when we looked at the Ten Commandments. And we saw it again as we looked at the Day of Atonement. The third thing that they received there was the sacrificial system. And so the law declares us to be sinners. It shows us that we can't, uh, we can't match up. We can't meet up with God's demand, his righteous, holy standard. And so God in his grace gives a sacrificial system to the people. And so those three things happened there at Mount Sinai. And now the children of Israel, they've left Mount Sinai. They've broken up camp. They've taken down the tabernacle. And now they are making their way to the promised land to the land that God has, um, has promised to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. It's a land that he's taking his people to. In fact, where we find ourselves in Numbers 13 is they're about halfway there and they, are, um, they need more. They're not, they're not just living on a prayer. They need more than just to live on a prayer here as they're going. And what we see here is maybe they need to pray more, in fact. They're in the wilderness of Paran, and they want to know more information about this land that God has promised to their ancestors. He wants more information. They just can't take it on faith. And so they're saying, hey, let's find out more. And so what they do is they, they elect 12 spies to go into the promised land and to spy it out, to reconnoiter the area. And so it's one uh, spy for each of the tribe. And so the 12 spies, they go looking at the land, and they come back and they make their report. Ten of the spies, they say in the words of my five-year-old, they say, can't do it. Like, that's what my five-year-old says. Anytime she meets any sort of obstacle, can't do it. And that's what 10 of the spies do. They come back with the report of can't do it. In fact, if you have your Bibles, look, look at it with me. In uh, Numbers chapter 13, Starting in verse number 25, it says, At the end of 40 days, they returned from spying out the land. And they came to Moses and to Aaron and to all the congregation of the people of Israel in the wilderness of Paran at Kadesh. 
they brought back the word to them and to, and to all the congregation. And they showed them the fruit of the land. And, and, and they told, and told him, we came to the land which you sent us. It flows with milk and honey and with large fruit. That's the promise. That's the promised land. That was the promise that God gave them. But look at verse number 28. However, and you're always in trouble anytime you add a, a however to the promises of God. God has promised to give us this land, a land flowing with milk and honey. However, he says, the people, this is the report of the 10 spies, the people who dwell in the land are strong and their cities are fortified and very large. And besides, we saw the descendants of Anak there. And so what we see is they come and they say, we can't do it. The people are too big. They're too many. We're like, in fact, they said, we're like grasshoppers in comparison to them. However, we can't do it. And then there are the two spies, the faithful spies, Joshua and Caleb. And what they say is they say, it is, the land is as God has promised it to be. It is a land flowing with milk and honey. This cluster of grapes was so big, we've cut it down and we've had to carry it on a pole. Yes, there are people there. But guess what? We will, with God's power, with God's might, we will eat those people for lunch. But yet the 10 influenced the congregation. A congregation of some 2 million people and the 10, the bad report, they take their word for it. They side with them and then look at um, chapter 14, what ensues. Chapter 14, verse one. Then all the congregation raised a loud cry and the people wept that night. And all the people of Israel, they grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation said to them, would that we had died in the land of Egypt or would that we would have di had died in the wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become a prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt and they said to one another, let us choose a leader and go back to Egypt. What's happening here is this is a coup. They are going to elect. They're going to vote for a new leader and they're going to march their way back into Egypt. And this decision, this action, it kindles the wrath of God and it brings upon this generation of people the judgment of God. That at first God is going to strike them down, but then Moses again, he intercedes on behalf of the people and God says, okay, but then here's the judgment that comes. They will not, this generation will not enter into the promised land. Only the children of this generation, only the two spies, Joshua and Caleb will enter into the, the promised land and the rest will perish in the wilderness. Now listen to me, like let this sink in for just a moment. The same men and women that saw God's might and power as it was displayed in Egypt through the plagues. The same men and women that believed God's word, that by faith they applied the blood of the lamb over the doorposts and the lintel and saw the death angel pass over. The same men and women that were released from captivity from Egypt, that plundered Egypt, that went to the, the uh, bank of the Red Sea, that saw God part the Red Sea, 
that walked on dry ground, that then turned around and saw a uh, ensuing army, Pharaoh's army come, and then Pharaoh's army be crushed, be swallowed up, be destroyed by the Red Sea. This same group of people will not enter into the promised land. And again, this is just maybe as much as two years has happened that God's verdict as it comes to his people, that what God finds them guilty of is God finds them guilty of rebellion. That's what he declares this to be, that my people have, they have, they have rebelled. They have turned away. Their desire is to return to captivity in Egypt. Now listen, their, their brand of rebellion, it isn't what we normally think of when we think of rebellion that their rebellion is manifested not in a way that we usually think of when we think about rebelling from God. It isn't that they've turned to rock and roll music and sexual promiscuity and all of those things. They're not having Woodstock in the wilderness. That's not what they're doing here. Their brand of rebellion isn't that they've invented some new drug. Their brand of rebellion isn't that they're now murdering one another. Their brand of rebellion, or I should say it like this maybe, their rebellion is being manifested by grumbling and complaining. The sentence of exile and death for them, it is manifested by their grumbling and complaining. That grumbling and complaining is fruit of unbelief. That's the real issue. The real issue isn't even rebellion. The real root issue that's at hand is the root issue of unbelief in their hearts. The unbelief is the opposite of faith. That what unbelief is, is unbelief is a refusal to believe, a refusal to trust that unbelief is calling into question, it is to call into question the provision and power and presence and promises of God. That if I can flip it and say it like this, that faith means what it means to have faith. It means to bank on, to move out in, to act obediently upon God's provision and power, presence, and promises. That what God requires of us is not just to believe in him, but to believe him. That mental assent in the existence of God is not the same as saving faith. Let me say that again, because I think that's something that we misunderstand in our culture. There's a kind of faith that, is, that, that even the demons share. And that kind of faith that the demons share is just to believe, a kind of belief that the demons have. And that belief is just a belief in the existence of God. Mental assent, to mentally acknowledge the existence of God is not the same thing as saving faith. But what God is calling us, what God requires of his people is to trust in, to bank upon, to move out obediently in on God's provision, power, presence, and promises. That is what saving faith is. Now, this isn't the first time that the children of Israel have put God to the test. This isn't the first time that the children of Israel have been found guilty of unbelief. It's happened at least three other times in the Bible. 
at least three other times, not even in the Bible, on this Exodus over these last three, uh, two years, it's happened at least three times. The first time that maybe we can draw, uh, since the crossing of the Red Sea that we can maybe draw attention of, is in an area called, a place called Mara. Now the word Mara means bitter. We'll see that again in the book of Ruth. That's what the word Mara means. It means bitter. And so God leads his people into an oasis. Mara is the name of that oasis because the water from the spring that's coming there is bitter. The water there is bitter. And so what you see is you see God's people, they begin to grumble and complain because they're thirsty. They begin to question God's provision. God, you've led us out here and now we're gonna die of thirst in this wilderness, in this place. Like, how can you do that? And then what God does is he miraculously turns the bitter water of Mara into sweet water as they drink of it. Another place where they put God to the test that they grumble and they complain is again at at Mount Sinai. Now, Mount Sinai, like I said, it's formative. Like at Mount Sinai, Moses climbs up to the top of the mountain and there he's meeting with God. Now, this is unlike any other meeting of God, any other prophet of God. This isn't like Muhammad when he goes into a cave and comes out and says, I met with Allah there. It's not like that. That God comes and he meets and it's very public before the very eyes of the people that as God meets with Moses on Mount Sinai, that there's an earthquake and there's lightning and there's thunder and there's smoke. It's obvious something is happening on top of that mountain. More than what Moses could just make up, make happen. More than what Moses could just counterfeit that is occurring on top of that. And then as Moses comes back down, what have the people of Israel, what have the children of Israel done? Well, they've made for themselves a golden calf. They've turned to idolatry, but the idolatry isn't that they're wanting to replace their God that has uh, led them out of Egypt. They're not wanting to replace him, but they're wanting to image him. They're actually breaking the second commandment. And in the golden calf, what they're saying is, this is Yahweh. This is our God. This is the God who, who appeared to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This is him. And what they're showing there is, again, they're showing their lack of faith in God's presence. They're calling in to question God's presence. And what they're saying is, we want a God that we can touch. We want a God that we can tame. We want a God that we can see. The third time or another time that they call into question God's provision and presence is it happens in a place called Meribah. The word Meribah is named that because it means quarreling. Again, they run into a place where they have no water. They feel like they're literally between a rock and a hard place. And what God does, this is in Exodus chapter 17. What God does is he instructs his servant Moses to strike that rock. There's a rock there in Meribah. Strike that rock and from that rock will flow water. Miraculously, he sends water. God provides manna for his people when they get hungry. Over and over again, God has shown himself. He has shown his provision. And they call into question time and time again, not just God's provision, but they call into question God's character. They call into question God's nature. They say that if this God would rescue his people, then he must, and yet he's unable to to save his people. He's unable to provide for his people. That with each new present crisis, they refuse to learn from God's past provision. That unbelief, as I said, is the opposite of faith. That what faith does is faith grows in the fertile soil of God's past provision and future promises. 
what faith does is faith is believing in, believing that God is with you despite your circumstances. That circumstances don't reveal whether God is with you or not. That God is with you through your circumstances. And what we see now happening in the wilderness of Paran is now they're calling into question the promises of God. 500 years ago or more, God has promised Abraham this land to give it to them. And now God is working in their midst. The spies go in, they come back with a report. Their report is, it is just as God has promised. It's just as God has promised to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. It's just as he has promised to Moses. It's just as he has promised to us. The land is just as he's promised. But however, There's an enemy there. And what we see happening here is the fear rises up in those 10 spies. It's then transferred to the rest of the congregation. And in that moment, what the congregation believe is they believe in the, the fear over their faith. That fear is the enemy of faith. That fear, what it does is it torpedoes our faith in the future promises of God. The 10 spies, they come back and what they say is that they have fear greater than their faith. And the two spies though, they had faith greater than the fear and the people choose the word and report of the 10 spies. They choose fear over faith. Now listen, Joshua and Caleb don't say that what the 10 spies report is untrue. They don't say that, hey, you know what? There's not any giants there. The truth is there there were giants and maybe they were bigger and maybe they looked badder. Maybe they were the descendants of the Nephilim. Maybe all of those things are true. Listen, faith does not make true things untrue, but faith banks on the power and the provision and the promises of God despite our real fears. That fear is a real thing. And feeling afraid and anxious and worried, those are real feelings. Is it sinful to feel those types of things? No, it's not sinful in and of itself to feel those things, but to remain afraid, to get paralyzed by fear, to be disobedient to the clear commands of God because you are afraid, because you are worried, because you feel paralysis of analysis, that all of those things, that they are not small, that that, being disobedient because of fear. That's no small things that all of those kinds of feelings, fear and worry and paralysis of analysis, they're indicators of something much deeper and they're indicators of the oftentimes of the sin of unbelief. It's been attributed, uh, I think I've heard it attributed to, uh, to Martin Luther. I heard it attributed to Billy Graham. And I'll just attribute it to my grandfather, another great and godly man, because I've heard him say this as well. 
That one time they ask a question about thoughts. In fact, I, well, the way I heard it was Billy Graham was asked one time about lust. Billy Graham, do you ever find yourself uh, having lustful thoughts? And this is what Billy Graham said. He said, you know what? I can't prevent a bird from flying over my head, but I can prevent it from building a nest in my hair. And that's the way thoughts, negative feelings, negative emotions, even fearful things, especially about true things happen in our lives is we can't stop those thoughts from entering our our minds. But what we can do is we can prevent them from building a nest. We can prevent them from taking root into our hearts. And in fact, that's the exact thing that the writer of Hebrews does with this very text, with this very place, with the people of Israel in Hebrews, the 10th chapter. The the writer of Hebrews gives to us this warning. I'm sorry, this is actually Hebrews, um, the third chapter. He says this, Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts in the rebellion. On the day of the testing in the wilderness, that's where we are in Numbers 13, where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. And then here's the word of warning to us New Testament saints. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living, from the living God. That the Exodus in the Old Testament, it serves as a picture. It serves as a picture of of God bringing his chosen, an example. It's, It's God bringing his chosen people out of captivity, out of slavery in Egypt, just as today he's bringing his chosen people out of, uh, out of our captivity to sin, out of the world and called to Christ. That Paul will say in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, he will say that all of this has happened as an example to us, the church, as instruction to us that we may persevere in our faith. That saving faith means to trust in, to bank upon, to move out obediently in faith on the provision, the power, the presence, and the promises of God that have been made to us in Christ Jesus. That the Apostle Paul writes in Romans, the first chapter, that the the righteous shall live by faith. And faith in Christ, it isn't a one-time act that we do in our past that's marked by our baptism, but faith in Christ is what he calls for us all the time. It's what he calls from us every day that unbelief is real. And that inside of you, there is this temptation, the presence of an evil and unbelieving heart that wants to lead you astray. That wants you to take you away from the living God. That's what the writer of Hebrews says in, there in Hebrews chapter three. And we have in Numbers 13 is an example It's an example of persevering faith shown by Joshua and Caleb versus a temporary faith that shows, that gives way to unbelief when problems arise. When a crisis comes, their temporary faith of the congregation 
to whom God's judgment will fall, the temporary faith of the 10 spies that it gives way, this temporary faith gives way into unbelief. And let me give to us some good news and hopefully some practical help. Hebrews also says in Hebrews, the 11th chapter, the second verse, it says that Jesus is the, it says that he is the author and the, and, and the perfecter of our faith, the founder of our faith and the perfecter of our faith. He's the one who initiates faith in us and he's the one who sustains faith in us. He's sustaining our faith as we obediently believe. That it is no accident when we think about the life of Christ that it parallels what we've been reading and studying here. That Jesus, he will be baptized. And then after Jesus' baptism, he'll go down into the water. He'll come back up again out of the water and the Holy Spirit will descend upon him. Similar to the way that the children of Israel will cross through the waters of the Red Sea that God's presence will dwell with them in the tabernacle. God's presence is dwelling with, it's dwelling upon, visually upon Jesus Christ. And after that occurs, it is no accident. Where does Jesus go afterward? He goes into the wilderness where there he will be tempted. He will be tempted by Satan himself. Jesus will withgo three temptations there in the wilderness. And this is no accident. This is God declaring. And this is Jesus being tried and Jesus being proven to be the, the, the faithful child of God. The faithful chosen person of God is who Jesus is. And listen, when you and I, when we put our, when we put our faith in Christ, when we place our faith in Jesus, then all of what Christ's faith has accomplished, all that is accomplished is transferred to you and I. That we say it here at the Point Community Church like this, is we're not saved by the strength of our faith, but rather we're saved by the object of our faith. And when you and I, when we take our weak and our fickle and our sometimes fearful faith, and we place it into Christ's perfect faith. Christ's perfect standing of all of the temptations that happen in the wilderness. When you and I, when we place it there, then Christ's perfection, Christ's faith is transferred to us. And, the, and, and even though you may question a thousand things in your life, there may be thousands of circumstances that come that may cause you to question. And at times you may be tempted to question God's provision. You may be tempted to question God's power. You may be tempted to uh, question God's presence. You may be tempted to, to question God's promises. But what strengthens you in those times, in those temptations to doubt those things as you look to Jesus, then in fact, what happens with Jesus in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul says this. He's talking again about the children of Israel and their temptations, their temptations towards unbelief, their temptations towards idolatry. And he says this, that when they get to, uh, that when they, whenever they get to that rock and that walk, rock is struck and the water flows from that, that that is a declaration to, to come and to drink, to come and to receive the provision that God makes. And what he says there is Jesus is that rock in the wilderness that what Paul is saying is, is that Jesus will be struck. 
And then as Jesus is struck and the striking of Jesus is what happens in Jesus's, uh, in Jesus's trials and Jesus's beatings. And ultimately when Jesus is on the cross, that Jesus is being struck there and what flows from Christ is provision. And he's saying, come and drink at that. And as we come and we drink at the provision of salvation that's made in Christ, may it strengthen you in your midst of your circumstances, in the midst of real things that may want to torpedo your faith, that may you, as you drink of Christ's provision of salvation that's made, may it strengthen you in the very place that you may be in. That Christ on the cross, his death, and as we even talked about last week in his resurrection, that what it speaks to us as the most clarifying truth for those of us that are in Christ, the most clarifying truth is the death and resurrection of Christ. And what it says is that God will provide. God will make provision for you. What it says is that God is with you. His presence is with you. What it says is that all of God's promises, his promises to save, his promise to give Christ. So therefore, all of his promises that God gives to you are true and right. And you can trust in him. You can believe in him. That you can come and you can drink. So what about our fears? What about our real circumstances? What about our real concerns? Remember, Jesus is the one who is the, the author, the, the initiator, the founder of our faith, but then also Jesus is the perfecter of our, of our faith. He is the one who sustains our faith. That listen, here's a beautiful truth. That not only, that not only does God require faith in his people, but he refines the faith of his people. But the life of faith means that we are constantly bringing our emotions, our negative emotions, those that try to torpedo us, those that come because of our unbelief, that you and I, we are constantly bringing them into congruence with the declaration of the, the bloody cross and the empty grave and the occupied throne of Jesus Christ. That just as what the writer of Hebrews said in chapter three, that there is within you an evil and unbelieving heart that's wanting to lead you astray. What do you do with real fears and real circumstances that happen that may bring us to a place where we may question one of those things about God? What do we do with those? First of all is recognize that within you, that's right within you, there is an evil and an unbelieving heart that's wanting to take you away. We sing in the hymn, we say, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Not the God that I hate, not the God that I'm ignorant of, but the God that I'm love. And no truer line has ever been written than that line right there. Number one is, do you know the undercurrent of your heart? That the undercurrent of your heart oftentimes for most of us is to lead us into unbelief. Even those of us who are genuinely saved and have the Holy Spirit have you ever tried to, to swim upstream or to paddle upstream? A couple of years ago, uh, myself and my brother-in-law, Bill Jones, for those of you who may know Bill, um, and, and my, my son, Grayson, and a handful of my nephews that we decided to go uh, kayaking and fishing in Elkhorn Creek. And the water was just right. It was up a little bit. It was good, swift current to the creek. And so we went down and we dropped off our kayaks and we put them in the water and we had taken two vehicles, my, my truck and Bill's truck. And so we dropped off one truck and uh, we went, drove downstream where we were going to come out. We left my truck there. We came back, got out, 
up, came back upstream, got out, got in the water, started kayaking down, and we had traveled maybe a half a mile. And I realized that I had left my keys, the truck where we were heading towards, back in Bill's truck that was upstream. And I was like, oh my goodness, what are we going to do? And so I told everybody, I said, hey, wait here. I'm going to turn my kayak around and I'm going to paddle back upstream and I'll go get my keys. The hardest thing I think I've ever done in my life, trying to paddle back upstream. I remember I was paddling and paddling and paddling and paddling. And then I finally, I, if I stopped for just a second, the current would just turn my boat around. I remember there were times I'd get out and I would drag my kayak out of the water. There were times I'd get out and I'd, I'd swim and push it and I was just utterly exhausted. Listen, that, that is the drift of our hearts. I've got a pastor friend in Nashville who says to his congregation time and time again, fight the drift, fight the drift, fight the drift, that the drift and the inclination of our hearts is towards unbelief, not towards belief. You paddling, you doing church disciplines, you gathering together as saints, you going to Bible studies, even virtual Bible studies, listening to worship music, reminding yourself of what all that Christ has done. That's one of the ways, those are ways and means that you're paddling. That's, that's or in the water that you're paddling upstream towards belief and trust in Christ. Now listen, yes, it's work. And it's Christ who's sustaining that work. It's his saving effort coming in and sustaining you in that work. I wanted to give for you just one very practical ways and a method, if you would, to how do I fight fear over faith? How do I do that? How do I, how do I fight for faith over fear? I knew I was going to do that. How do I fight to have faith over my fear. Well, I want to share with you something that, uh, that my, my dear friend, Pastor Tony Cecil gave to us one time. Now there's a fine line between crazy and genius and Pastor Tony, he, he crossed that line with this one. I don't know which way, but it's, it's good. It's real good. How do you fight fear with faith? Well, here's how you do it. It's a mnemonic device, not a pneumatic device. That would be something that runs off an air compressor. This is a mnemonic device. The acronym is REPEAT, R-E-P-E-A-T. Here's how you do it, is R, repeat. Number one, remember the gospel. Again, this is the most clarifying truth in our life. Never, ever forget what Christ has done for you while you were still weak. While you were still a sinner, Christ's love has been made evident. It's been evidenced for you in the work of Christ, what Christ has done on the cross, what God has wrought in the grave. Those are the most clarifying truths for us. So remember the gospel. Remember what Christ has done. E, express to God your own weakness, your fear. What is it that you're afraid of in that moment? What thought has captivated you that's, that's brought you down, that's making you feel those negative thoughts, those negative emotions? And again, these are real things. There really were people inhabiting the land. We'll see that, I believe, maybe even next week. We'll see that, the real inhabitants of the land. What are those real things that are working fear in you? But number two, next, the P is pray. 
Pray for God's help through the Spirit. It's the Spirit that supplies the strength. It's the Spirit that comes in that pushing the kayak forward against the stream. And pray. Declare your dependence upon God in prayer. E is expect God to keep his promises. Expect God to provide help, provision, protection. Expect him to do it because he's always been faithful and true. So expect that. A, now act. Act on the task in front of you of what what needs to be done. Don't be paralyzed by fear. What is it that God's calling you to do? How do you move out? How do you act obediently? That's the faith component. Now you act on it. And then lastly, T, thank God for the help that he promises and provides. That regardless of the circumstances, the problems, the sin, what you do after that is you repeat. You go back again, R-E-P-E-A-T, repeat. And when you get done with that, guess what you do again? Repeat, repeat. That that's the life of the Christian. We're constantly repeating. We're constantly going back over. We're constantly preaching the truths that are found right there in that acronym to ourselves over and over and over. And as we do that, watch faith shrink your fears. So we come to a time of closing. Let me just ask two questions. First, is rebellion something that's present in your heart and in your life? Do you recognize it? Do you realize it? What are you trusting in? What are you banking upon? Is it Christ and his finished work on the cross? Christ and his salvation? What I'm asking you now is, have you ever repented of your sin and put full faith and trust in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior? Have you ever prayed and asked Christ to save you, to forgive you? Have you done that? And is that, decision, is that prayer, is that obedient act that you've done, is it being evidenced in the life that you live currently? Which brings me to this second question, the life that you're currently living. Is it a life where you're walking in faith or is it a life where you're walking in fear? Which spy are you? The 10 spies who return and say, We can't believe, we can't trust in God. That's ultimately what they're saying. Are you like Joshua and Caleb? Saying no, despite my circumstances, despite what is true around me, I know this. God's promises are true. Let's pray. Father, we find ourselves, as you very well know, we find ourselves in in a fearful state in this world. That we find ourselves fighting something, an unseen enemy that is fearful. Never before, Lord, for most of us, never before have we lived in a, in a time where every day we get reports of the numbers who, of people who have 
been sick and the number of people who have died. And Lord, it reminds us of the frailty of our flesh. And it can also just inflict all sorts of fear upon us, Lord. Lord, may those of us who trust in you, may we have assurance and may we have confidence. Not that we may not get COVID-19, but even if we do get COVID-19, that COVID-19 could just destroy this body, but it by no means can ever negate your promises that you have made. That your promise that you have made to those who trust in you and those who believe in you, that our sins are forgiven, they're buried in the deepest ocean, and that when we die, we will pass from death unto life. That we will leave the land of the dead and we will pass into the land of the living. And Lord, may that be true. May that hold our hearts. That may your death and resurrection be the most clarifying truth in our lives, Lord. And Lord, strengthen our faith. In your great name we pray. Amen.